morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is Alice Bell, whose novel Grave Expectations has just been published in the US in September, though I had the pleasure of seeing it on the shelves of UK bookshops this spring. Alice, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So in your description of yourself, you write, and I'm quoting here from the description, Alice Bell has probably read more detective fiction than you. Um, that, I, I love that description, but, I, but it made me wonder what, what first got you excited about that genre? What, what lured, it, lured you to it? I think, uh, well, first of all, I will say that that description has uh, come back to bite me uh, on several <laughs> counts. But uh, I, I think that probably gives me enough leeway. <laughs> but um, I think, like a lot of um, a lot of people, it was Agatha Christie who was my first, my first kind of foray, I guess, when I was quite young. Um, I am the middle child, classic middle child, and I, uh, when my big brother went to university, I inherited his room, which had. Um, the bookshelves just all the bookshelves were in my big brother's room and everything was on there so I just went in there when I was about 11 and then came out you know five years later sort of mostly formed having read loads of books that probably were I shouldn't have and uh yeah I read loads of Marple and Poirot and then I found uh some Sherlock Holmes as well so it was the kind of golden age detectives that I I got into first got stuck into I think it fascinates me because I read a lot of Agatha Christie when I was the same age too. And I have a nephew who got really into Agatha Christie when he was that age. You know, she wasn't writing novels for teenagers, but why do you think we all were drawn to her at that, at that point in our lives? I don't know. They're so, um, I, I suppose, timeless in a way. And then, you know, now there's a resurgence in uh, wanting that kind of way of life, you know, with cottage core kind of yeah. teenagers now. Like I want to live in an unheated cottage and having grown up in the the countryside in England, I always say, Oh, I don't know if you do, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> they are, I think they're so well put together and so many crime writers crib little bits here and there, just take little ideas. They are, just such kind of well-oiled, uh, intricate little devices yeah. um, that they just work and continue to work. And they're so charming. And some of them are so funny as well. The Marple ones, yeah. uh, particularly, like Murder at the Vicarage, I think is my favorite. It's so funny. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming a writer. What what happened between your 11 years old and reading Agatha Christie and now you yourself are writing detective fiction? I know it's I sometimes can't believe it um but I like I think a lot of people that studied uh English English literature at university I've always had a book in me I've always tried to to write and I think 
over the years I've tried to write things that um I was trying to write genres that I was into at the time so I've tried to write fantasy and stuff but something about during lockdown I was just reading a lot of uh sort of the the grim kind of bloody serial killer slicing people up fiction which I love as well like I'm not I would never you know uh do that down I, I think there's absolutely a place for that but I just wanted something a bit lighter um and so then I started reading a bunch of cozy crime and I wanted from that I think it's a classic sort of you you write the book that you're sort of looking for but can't find I wanted something that was a bit more of what was cozy for me I think yeah um but before that I've been for 10 years uh, the I've been in games journalism, games media, so I write reviews of video games, which is completely the opposite end of yeah. the spectrum from Agatha Christie, really. I don't know. I mean, I could imagine a Miss Marple video game working working pretty well. Uh. Uh, they've done a few, yeah, but in terms of herself, the style is quite yeah. different, I suppose. But it does mean I'm very used to uh, strong feedback from commenters and, yeah. and getting edited as well, which really does help, I think. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm actually working right now on a on a mystery novel, and it's it's a little bit meta and a little bit cozy. And one of the characters, the 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 mystery writer in this novel, writes what she considers to be the rules of the mystery novel. And her rules mm -hmm. include things like you don't introduce a new suspect in the last chapter and things like that. And I'm curious to know if you have did you have a set of rules of sort of sort of guidelines of like here here are the the areas in which I have to stay to make this sort of fair to the reader and to the genre. Yeah, I did. So I did try to, I think, make it so that you could, you could figure it out yourself. Yeah. So no, no introducing the, the murderer. It's just someone we didn't know and had an unknown motive. Uh, I think even if you, I, I just like it more, even if, you know, maybe you don't meet and speak to the character, but they've been mentioned as, you know, a presence or, you know, they, it's not that they, the first time they ever come up is when they get caught. So I, I do really like that. Um, I I don't know that I like the one, <laughs> it's not really a rule, but the problem I have is that if you're trying to write a sort of golden age mystery now, you have to figure out what to do with mobile phones or like it, yeah. it's just harder <laughs> to write a mystery that... <laughs> that where it can't just all be solved immediately by someone so, like sending a text that's the problem i i've been having i think yeah i think a lot of us are writing novels that are set in sort of 1989 or 1990 mm. you know just right before the the yeah the internet and mobile phones are made it all much much more difficult to have that that complexity of who knows what at when you know <laughs> um. So this novel is populated with what one commentator called semi-helpful ghosts. The title, <laughs> the title Grave Expectations is, is obviously is an allusion to Charles Dickens, who wrote more mm. than his fair share of ghost stories as well. Um, tell us about the title and, and specifically why you wanted to reference Dickens. Oh, do you know, it, I, it went through a few different um, uh, title iterations. And now for the series, I think I'm locked in a pun death spiral. <laughs> <laughs> for future titles but um uh i i think um uh it's sort of an allusion to the in it's a take on the kind of um big stately you know family home mansion things so it's a little bit in an allusion to that kind of like um you know 
the main character Claire is like a struggling kind of working class uh, and maybe aspirations to be middle class um, person who's living sort of on the waterline a bit and she comes to this kind of you know big weird crumbling English country manor and meets all these weird posh people um, and and I think as well Dickens was so good at drawing these weird sort of larger than life strange characters that you can also recognize a seed of something familiar in as well um and of course the ghost thing as well it's it's it was it was a pun but also a pun that kind of works i think i hope anyway so this is this is both a ghost story and and, mm. uh, and a murder mystery um what why did you want to combine those two genres and what 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 about them do you feel like makes them work well together because i think they do work well together but but why <laughs> uh but it's funny i sort of always forget that it's i guess technically a, a fantasy or like a science fiction like it's a genre as well you know um i it's quite an unserious book in many ways but the the thing with ghosts because I don't believe in ghosts but I find them fascinating and I find horror fascinating and I think what you're haunted by and what you find frightening is very honest do, do you know and and the things that haunt you and you that that kind of follow you around and that you imagine are, are sticking around the kind of um they they tell you quite a lot I think and in this the, the main character Claire is yeah she's millennial-ish um, and she's struggling and she's you know not really a proper grown-up and she is haunted by the ghost of her school age best friend who was you know disappeared was murdered when they were 17 and so that to me is sort of this um, very literal representation of uh, being haunted by your past but also as a as a millennial you're sort of never allowed to grow up and so Claire is stuck in this kind of arrested development and then she's always followed around by this kind of teenagery presence and then yeah. Sophie herself can literally never grow up um so there's kind of a tension between them because Sophie is always really frustrated that Claire hasn't done more with her life um but Claire her kind of point is that well I haven't I can't do anything with my life because you're here like yeah. you're so you're so weird and you make me so weird and incapable of doing anything you know so the the novel begins with Claire arriving at this as you say this sort of crumbling family home in the countryside um and just to just to help us a little bit with the setup what, what is Claire why is she there so the family that she's there to visit, she was at university with the oldest daughter, whose name is Figgy. And every year for Halloween slash the birthday of the sort of grandmother, the oldest, like the matriarch-ish, um, who's technically the owner of the house, they do a kind of little entertainment. And it's on one of them each year to to sort of organise something to have as a little event so I think the year before it was a, an acapella song group did a little performance a mashup song performance and so this year it was Figgy's turn and so she's decided we'll do a seance with this freelance medium that I was at university with because she left it a bit last minute and uh, the idea the place is haunted quite haunted so they think it'll be good fun 
to have a freelance medium there. But then Claire, while she's there, meets the ghost of a murder victim. So that's sort of where it all kicks off. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I thought, I thought the way it started was was wonderful because you have Claire and Sophie are having these conversations. And I kept, I was like, well, why? Sophie's kind of like slightly undefined at the beginning. Like, is it, I'm like, is this her sister? Is this her friend? Why isn't the author telling me who this person is? <laughs> and then of course you do tell me who, who she yeah. is. And it's just, there's this sort of aha moment um, that, that she's been talking to this ghost all the time that nobody else can hear. Um, so when you, when you drop something like that then do you I mean like were you structuring it towards that the whole way or do you then go back and go okay I need to make sure that no other characters are responding to this person's voice I need to be sure you know that I've that I've played fair with the reader up to this point so that this mm. surprising piece of information is is logical with everything that's happened so far it was always the way I was yeah structuring that first chapter is to make especially the conversations that they have in the car with Figgy who comes to pick them up from the train station. I wanted it to feel a bit ambiguous as to whether yeah. Sophie and Figgy could talk to each other, if Figgy could hear and was responding to, to Sophie. Um, and I, I suppose partly that was because I thought, oh, this is really good to, you know, query to, <laughs> to send to agents and stuff. It's quite yeah. a good like twist thing. But um, also I think it's fun if you, if you do, yeah, if you pick it up and maybe you, you read it and you're not really, Sure, I thought I thought it was quite a nice little twist and a nice little intro yeah. into it. Of course, the problem is you can't really sort of market the book without saying what the USB is really <laughs> on the dust cover on the back. But um, uh, I still like it. I just think it's a nice little little moment. Yeah, I think for me sometimes that's I don't I don't love reading digital galleys, but the advantage of it is I often have not read the. The, the back cover or anything and so, mm. so for me it was a surprise so, <laughs> <laughs> um one of the one of the challenges i've i've faced in writing a mystery is that you need enough characters to keep the reader guessing right but you don't want mm. so many characters that they're that it becomes confusing i mean i mm. i just did a rewrite for my agent she's like you got to cut some characters out of this there's too many characters <laughs> um, so it's just it's this kind of delicate balance tell us about the ways in which you introduce characters to the reader so that so that they'll sort of stick in our minds and differentiate themselves from one another uh, it's funny I've just had exactly the same conversation for this sequel with my <laughs> publishers there's too many people you have to cut at least one of these couples um it's I really tried to because I grew up you know in that sort of area where I was like the you know the quote-unquote normal kid and then you'd get like weird posh families in big houses in the middle of nowhere and um I try to so first of all stagger the introductions a little bit so that they're not you do have them all in play for when you need them but they're not quite uh all thrown at the reader at once um and then you can remove some pieces from the board later on as well um, I also try to, because I think it was Roger Ebert says it's the law of economy of characters. So like if one character turns up more than all the others, they're probably the murderer. So I try to, uh, <laughs> kind of stay aware of that and kind of balance it so that everyone sort of turns up a few times and you get to see them. 
a, a little bit so you, you you're not falling foul of that and then I think it's very important to try and yeah make them feel a bit larger than life but not verge into them being caricatures because I think you can make an exaggerated version of someone that everyone knows so I think a good example is um Figgy who she's the first character they meet um they meet her by herself she gives them a lift so they get a little bit of time with her by themselves and it's just her and she's a very recognizable posh kind of horsey blonde girl <laughs> but then also she's a little bit you feel a little bit sad for her because she's got a lot of like self-help books and relationship books and stuff in her room and things like that when they go and talk to her later so I think it's the, the staggering the introductions for me is helpful um the giving them all a little bit uh sort of, of exaggerated uh traits but then that kind of recognizable human side as well and the other thing as well is that sometimes in a uh, murder mystery you can cheat and do like a fun like dramatic person i list in the front as well so yeah i mean i you do have a family tree in the front yeah which, again to me is another great argument for reading a physical book because it's so much easier mm. <laughs> um but my wife actually goes just take a picture of it just take a screenshot of it. And then I'm like, oh, um, but but tell us a little bit about that because it's not just a family tree. It's kind of like annotated and, and yeah. really it's actually, I mean, that that diagram not only helps us with the characters, but it gives us some insight into the character who wrote the family tree and sort of what kind of book this is going to be. So tell us about sort of that setup. Yeah, this was a um, an idea that came a, a bit later after done all the edits and we were just talking about putting the physical proofs and things together. Um, and I think it was uh, the um, American editor who suggested adding it. So it's a family tree, but it's been annotated by Alex, who is the youngest member of the, uh, the Wellington Forge family of posh weirdo suspects. They are 19 and they're kind of... Um, a bit rudderless they don't know what they want to do with their life really they sort of want to be a, an artist or maybe Joe and uh, they've not gone to university um, but they are one of the main supporting cast they sort of form part of the the Scooby gang of investigators that help uh, solve the murder so they join up with Claire and Sophie and they are quite that they, they are they live with their uncle Basher and Basher and Alex are supposed to be a sort of mirror to Sophie and Claire because Basher is quite grown up and he, uh, you know, he owns a flat that he lives in and he used to have a proper job. And then Alex is a, is a young teenage person, but they're the new generation, you know, Alex is a, a Zoomer, I guess. Um, so they are, energetic and weird and they have a lot of opinions and they've scrawled all over the family tree at the start which I hopefully helps give you a little bit of a hook yeah. uh to the the family and yeah also as you say a little bit of insight into how Alex thinks about all the people in their family as well yeah I have to say Alex I probably have less in common with Alex than any other character <laughs> in this book and yeah she's my favorite character in the book they're they're my favorite character in the book and um that slip of the tongue brings brings up this yeah. notion that they you never actually come out and say Alex is non-binary or Alex just uses they pronouns. Mm. And can you talk a little bit about how we can use fiction as a way to normalize somebody who uses they pronouns, somebody who's non-binary, somebody who's queer, mm. somebody, you know, it's, it's somebody who's in a marginalized community 
that, that sort of not drawing attention to it does a different thing than, than drawing attention to it. Yeah, um, I think, because I obviously I'm not a member of the black community myself, but I, you know, <laughs> it sounds like a joke to say, but some of my closest friends are non-binary. Um, and I wanted to have, uh, you know, we're talking about things that are cozy to me. It is very familiar to me to, you know, have a non-binary person, you know, in my friendship group. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I thought that was also kind of a good uh, counterweight if we're talking about mirroring, you know, Alex and Sophie and, and thinking about the new generation and, and things like that. Um, so I wanted to have uh, a non-binary character, but also them just be, it just be chill and normal and yeah, not really be referenced and talked about. So it's like Alex is not, you know, unhappy. Their family, the, you know, it's never referenced their family are unsupportive. Their family, you know, are potentially murderers, but they have no problem with, you know, <laughs> Alex being non-binary. In the scene where they were introduced, actually, um, the there was a, a bit where it was explicitly stated that oh Alex uses they them pronouns but then I thought well if that's the only character that I do that for then that is not making it chill and normal and not a yeah. big deal you yeah. know so it so it's just a thing you know in the book and um I thought that you know not not wanting to have like uh, a kind of tragedy like issue representation for Alex but just have them be like a fun kind of normal chill person who's just enjoying their life and like you know having the same maybe like issues that adolescents have sometimes um just felt like a normal way to you know have that character yeah I just I think that's so important that that we do that in our fiction that just again mm. to just normalize um whatever sort of characters you know yeah exactly yeah well, let's move from human beings to former human beings for a minute <laughs> and, and talk about, about ghosts. Um, you know, we talked earlier a little bit about, you know, the rules, quote unquote, of, of writing a mystery. Um, when you introduce an element of the supernatural, whether it's magic mm. or ghosts or whatever, you, you almost have to set up your own rules and parameters for how that works. Mm. You, you do that. You have sort of a rule, rules about ghosts, who, who they are, how they, how they act, what they can and can't do. Tell us a little bit about about developing that um, mm. and did, were those were those solely your own or did they come from other sources and how did you how did you sort of create this this world beyond just saying these are ghosts uh so it was a it kind of developed a little bit over time and I did it was the case that I wanted to have rules uh, and I wanted to then not break them and I'm not intending to kind of introduce new rules necessarily because I feel like that's a bit cheaty, you know. Yeah. Um, but they weren't explicitly stated uh, until uh, one of my editors was like, you just need to do a paragraph where you say this is what happened because otherwise the reader doesn't know. <laughs> In my head, it was all fixed. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, the, there are some rules where... Uh, they can't interact with things physically. Um, they look like either um, what they, it's, they, they look like some aspect of, of what they look like when they're alive, whether that be when they were at their happiest or when they died. Um, that's usually the deal. Um, they 
can't talk to people um but they can wander about and if they don't uh sort of keep themselves together ghosts will kind of forget who they are and turn into like a, a kind of weird little mist so they have to have some sort of purpose otherwise they just kind of forget and drift away and then the rules can be sort of broken but to a dramatic effect because because then you know if they get broken then the reader will go oh my god that's you know yeah. what's going on and so uh claire is kind of a vehicle for that as well because she can be used by ghosts as a like a battery pack basically yeah. so they can do I, more. I, I love the fact that for so many of these ghosts the reason they're hanging around is is petty you know it's not yeah spite it's yeah. Not a huge thing you know yeah well because i think that like that's what that's most of our grievances are kind of petty aren't they not many people have like a big reason for unfinished business it's mostly because like nobody's looking after the rose garden properly or whatever you know <laughs> <laughs> so did you i mean did you did you read a lot of other ghost stories when you were developing this or you just sort of completely on your own thought about how you wanted them to work how how do you see this fitting into other kind of ghost narratives in in the english literature canon uh, so the one that I think about the most is called The Ghost of Thomas Kemp by Penelope Lively, which is uh, a children's book I loved um, when I was younger. And I go back to it quite a lot. Uh, and I like that because, it, yeah, he's a poltergeist, but he's a very, he's a very petty poltergeist. <laughs> and he just kind of gets annoyed about stuff. Um, and he's he's largely the the conflict in the book is him trying to uh, get the, you know, the young boy who who lives in his house now to kind of uh, tell people how how good and clever he is and do stuff for him. Uh, and it's all very petty stuff. And like he turns up and he leaves like a rude message on a teacher's chalkboard because he doesn't agree with the science and history being taught and things. It's just all very petty stuff like that. So I think it's great. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's, um, you know, obviously uh, we can tell from talking to you, there's a lot of humor in this in this book and in the way that you deal with the ghosts. But there's also some kind of, <laughs> I don't want to say dark moments. I mean, there are dark moments, but the yeah. one that really struck me is she says, people would enjoy Marble Arch much less if they could see how many yellowing skeletons were sitting on the benches beside them. And of course, <laughs> as you point out, this is where, this was the site of public execution. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about the the burdens of Claire's ability to see ghosts and how those burdens kind of open up this world of history that, mm. that most of us never really think about in our daily lives, especially in a place like London or, you know, where there's there's so many centuries of history. Mm. I think one of the things that, that kind of started this really was I, I was thinking about, well, how if you because I wanted to do a book where, yeah, the, the citizen detective was a medium who could see ghosts. And then I was thinking, well, if you could see ghosts, that would actually be kind of awful because it would, it would re it would affect every part of your life from day to day because people have died everywhere yeah. um, and not in nice ways. And then, yeah, if you go to somewhere like London, the history of London is so bloody and, yeah and now has been built over, you know, with parks and nice, you know, tourist attractions. Like imagine if you went to the Tower of London and you could see, you know, the ghosts of everyone that had been beheaded there. And uh, so I, that was really just born out thinking like, yeah, God, it would be, it would be awful. And you would feel, she like Claire spends a lot of her time basically not trying to make eye contact with uh, yeah. ghosts because they so, 
basically no one can see them and they're so desperate all the time to you know be heard and talk to people and that's such a kind of weight you know if you're that person that's such a weight for you to have on your shoulders that you just sort of ignore it I think you know so when you when you begin a mystery what what comes first for you is it is it the characters is it the setup is it the murder is it the solution I mean a a mystery writer has to present information to Mm. readers in a very specific order but in what order does that information actually come to you uh I so mine are quite character driven um I sort of usually start with the the premise so I want to the you know I'm working on the second book now and that is a sort of take on uh the sort of Lucy Foley style you know big group of friends go on a holiday and someone gets murdered and there's a you know oh there are some weirdos that aren't part of our group maybe they did it and then so in this the weirdos are Claire and Sophie basically (laughs) so um so then I yeah I saw that uh that's the kind of the big picture concept and then I think right what is the group that's going on holiday basically why are they friends and then from that I'm like right one of them's going to get murdered does who would murder them and why and then I so then I work backwards from that so this this person gets murdered this is who murdered them and then around that I sort of thread reasons that the other characters would want to murder them um and try and weave in you know the red herrings and the the other threads so yeah, I sort of go backwards and then forwards again for for me one of the great joys is figuring out a reason why everybody yeah would have a motive to to murder whoever it is that got murdered you know that yeah, yeah, great, yeah. I think there's great fun in that <laughs> well let's talk a, a little bit about the beginnings and the ends of chapters um mm. you choose to title your chapters which I really I really like that in a mystery because because then the title itself becomes sort of like this mini mystery yeah. to unpack as as we move our way through the chapter and um like many mystery writers you have a you have a um great ability to end a chapter with a with a twist or a bang or something surprising <laughs> um so talk talk to us a little bit about the art of chapter writing from from title at the beginning to sort of cliffhanger at the end so i am a long chapter writer so you find a lot in uh, thrillers and stuff especially they have this really great short you know just one more kind of bite-sized chapters that are a few pages my chapters are a bit longer um and uh that is difficult <laughs> because, because I sort of want to have the feeling of you know rather than it being um uh, a thrilling thing keeping you awake it's more like having a bath hanging out with some friends you know a, a chance to kind of soak a little bit in some of the chapters uh, and so I really struggle with figuring out like how how long is too long and if I bolt this bit on here which would actually be quite a good place to end it would that be too long so um, I usually have to think about where I want to end the chapter before I start writing it uh, and then sometimes I have to synthesize chapters out of bits from different ones especially when I'm editing um, and a lot of the time with the the endings then because I plan the ending I can sort of think about what is then a good a good title uh, a lot of the titles are just jokes <laughs> actually in my fairness the little jokes or associations uh or yeah little jokes that you want to get I think my favorite in Grave Expectations is one of the chapters ends with Basher saying 
do not under any circumstances get on a train to London and investigate you know this person's office and then the next chapter over the page the title is the gang get on a train go to yeah. London <laughs> <laughs> which uh which made me laugh you know if no yeah. one else no I mean I think I think we like those kind of little narrative surprises and also I, I like that kind of link from one chapter to the next mm. uh which which the title gives you a chance to do yeah uh, one, one of the other rules that my fictional mystery writer talks about is she's very fond of um the aristotelian unities of of time space and action and one of the things i notice about a lot of a lot of mysteries take place over a pretty short time period mm. um and in a pretty limited physical place you know the country house out in the, in the yeah, yeah. um to, to what extent did you want to try to sort of contain time and space um in 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 this book or in, or in any of the books in, that you foresee in this series uh, well, in this one, I wanted it to take place a little bit longer um, space of time, but um, still have kind of uh, an end point on it in mind. So because I wanted the characters to get to know each other a little bit, but I also didn't want to drag it out for months and months. So this starts with um, a character dying who is not the murder victim, but a character dies. And then the end point is the funeral. So it's... Um, uh, is it a couple of weeks? I think it's a couple of weeks. Yeah, looking at the, I looked up like average time till funeral in the UK. And I was like, <laughs> boom, there we go. <laughs> so I, yeah, I did want to give myself a cap, um, but still have a little bit more time. But then the next one is it that is it's a it's a a closed loop. It's a bushel episode, so it's a few days on an island and uh, someone dies and they're all trapped together. You know. I, I do love the fact that in this book, the first person who dies is not the murder victim. We, go, we sort of go along for a little while thinking, okay, that's the murder. Now we're going to have to solve it. And then, you know, her ghost just says, no, I wasn't, I wasn't murdered. <laughs> and the readers left like, okay, okay. <laughs> but I mean, the, to have a, to have a death itself be a, a red herring, if you will. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure I've run into that one before. Um, <laughs> Claire is a fan of a particular police procedural TV show. Yeah. Um, and she's a fan, even though, or maybe because of the fact that the pattern is always the same. She says, yeah. you can tell who the murderer was based on who appeared on screen when. Yeah. Um, we seem to, but I mean, I think that's true of like almost every police procedural TV show. I mean, there's this, there's this, um, you know, ongoing joke in America that like whoever, whoever's the the top star, if if they don't end up dead, then they're definitely the killer. You know. Yeah. Uh, why do you think we like those kind of patterns in our mysteries? What is it about? You know, we want both the predictable and the unpredictable simultaneously, right? Mm. Uh, I love. That's why I wanted to have a, a police procedural in it, and it's, it's called Murder Profile, and it's just an amalgamation of all police <laughs> procedurals, basically. Um, uh, but like, I think it's because it's comforting because you want, like, you want the bad guys to get caught and to, you know, the the day be saved and it be okay in the end. And in real life, it's kind of not like that always, you know, and people don't get their comeuppance always. And so it's nice to have that kind of comforting rhythm where you can um, see someone get caught, you know, and the good guys prevail. Um, but 
after a while, yeah, you do want that that little twist thrown in just to to change it up a little bit. But I rewatch things over and over again that I've seen before just because I want to I want to go on the same journey again, you know. So do you? And you talked about your Agatha Christie being an influence. Mm. Um, what about non-book? mysteries you know whether it be a television show or, or or a film or you know do you is that a is that a source that you look to also for um whether it be for structure or for character or for just seeing cool crimes uh, uh yeah a little bit so i like i sort of cheat because it um midsummer murders came from a book series but i yeah. love midsummer murders the two which is long exhausted the books now i think uh, it's on like series 25 or something i love midsummer murders because they have to come up with increasingly ingenious ways for people to die in this small english uh county um which the they should do an episode about someone saying why is the survival rate why is the yeah. murder rate in this oh, it's Oxford's a very dangerous town to live in you know exactly yeah <laughs> yeah Morse is another great one yeah. um then uh there's um death in paradise which I I love which is about just like an English detective moving to uh to Caribbean island and just solving crimes there and being uncomfortable um and that's great as well because it has a really fun uh opening credit song so it'll like start with someone discovering a really awful uh murder and screaming and then it'll go into like trumpets <laughs> immediately it's great <laughs> um well one of the other characters that, that you've mentioned uh in our conversation is basher this is mm. alex's uncle i believe yes. uh and um Basher at one point suggests that Claire, because she seems to be good at these kind of things, should maybe join the police. And she says mm. she would rather be dead. Uh, <laughs> and she says, quote, giving voice to the contradiction at the heart of her murder mystery obsession. Tell us about both her obsession and the contradiction at its heart. <laughs> so the, um, you know, millennial women love murder. Uh, a lot of people love murder. They love true crime. Um, it's a it's a huge thing, you know. Uh, people love it. The reason murder mysteries are so uh, uh, popular, you know, uh, both in film and books and TV, and you know, the Glass Onion and Knives Out, um, yeah. are hugely successful, popular. Um, the, the people love them, but then I think it would. be be disingenuous of me to write um a mystery like this that is about um uh you know millennials and younger people and you know bashers and ex-cop I, I was like i need to have someone who sort of knows what they're doing in there so that's kind of bashers role he's the adult but it'd be disingenuous to, to write it um without sort of mentioning and you know at least gesturing towards the fact that the, there's an anxiety in my generation about the role of the police and and how that figures into everything you know um and uh it's a weird one because you know so many uh mystery writers are ex-cops or they're married to cops or the you know um they're part of that world um but it it's still true that you know people my generation and younger are, are just a little bit kind of leery of it um yep. these days yeah. And I think that's an important thing to, 
I don't, I don't think I should pretend that that isn't the case, you know. Well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully it'll mm -hmm. give us insight into you and into your writing. So if you're ready, we will begin. What word do you love to work into your writing? Wool. I'm following the comedian. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, oh, God, what's his name? Stuart Lee, the comedian, works wool into all of his stand-up sets, and I'm trying to do the same thing. <laughs> what word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Oh, moist. I hate the word moist. It never heralds anything good. <laughs> Where's your favorite place to write? Beanbag. Got a big XL beanbag in my living room. Where could you never write? Um, I, do you know, I actually really have trouble writing in cafes because there's just too many people and distractions around me. I'm too. I'm like the the dog in Up. I'm squirrel. I'm like, <laughs> I get too distracted. <laughs> so I need to be silent in a locked room in the dark, basically. So what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Uh, I don't, well, I, I know quite a lot of them, I think, because I try and write dialogue, especially the way that people actually talk. Yeah. So probably uh, um, all of them. That's fair. <laughs> yeah. What was, what was the first book you remember reading? First one I ever remember reading. Um, uh, well, when did I really kind of come online? I reckon it would be um, a Ladybird book. Oh, Famous Five. It would be Famous Five. I love oh, Famous yeah. Five. Kids Mystery. There you go. Yeah, yeah. What are you reading now? What am I reading right now? I am actually reading. Um, it's called Myrtle. It's a collection of logic puzzles. Um as seen on Myrtle.com, which is like Wordle, but murder. You get like a daily logic puzzle. And there's a, a book out now called Myrtle. It's the first volume. It's a hundred puzzles, but it also has a plot. Yeah. Oh, that sounds great. Secret codes and things. It's really good. Yeah. What book would you like to have written? Uh, good Omens. <laughs> Both for the royalties <laughs> and because it's a very good book. Yeah. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? Uh, like a sci-fi, like a hard sci-fi, I think. I don't I don't think I'm built for it, but I'd love to. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? Um, I would love to hear a reader say that they they wish they could be friends in real life with the, the gang in the book. That's what I'm aiming for, I think. <laughs> this has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and my guest today has been Alice Bell, whose novel Grave Expectations will be available September 5th wherever books are sold. Alice, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. 
For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. On upcoming episodes, I'll be talking to authors who will be visiting us for the Bookmarks Festival of Books and Authors here in Winston-Salem on September 23rd. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.